Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. And just my generic caveat, the suggestions and recommendations we may make today do not reflect those positions of Morgan Stanley, but rather those of the World Business Academy. If you'd like to check out our website, the Academy can be found at www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we include questions and comments from you, our audience, um, that have been coming to us in the past month through email. If you'd like to place a question about this show or any other show, you can simply email us at info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that you can use to actually make some money. Today we're going to be focusing on the issue of inspired leadership. Ronaldo and I will be looking at the, at the concept of conscious business leadership and compare that with President Obama's leadership, or lack thereof, of, in Washington, D.C., of the political establishment, and the impact that this apparent lack has on national and global economies. We're also going to be talking with an old friend of ours, James Cusimano. Jim is a Ph.D., an entertainer, executive, entrepreneur, filmmaker, and holistic hotel operator. Uh, Jim has a recent new book called Balance, the Business Life Connection. Ronaldo, I'm going to turn it back to you to give a little bit more background on Jim, um, who started out years ago in the late 50s with a recording group called the Royal Teens, and ended up being the chief executive of Catalytica, uh, a major uh, industrial firm. Ronaldo, what do you have to say about Jim? Well, thanks very much, and I will, uh, I'll do a little bit of an intro to Jim, um, but I, I think it's better if Jim talks about his five lives, uh, meaning the five specific uh, career paths he has uniquely created, all of which ended up remarkably successful, and which he's captured in his new book, Balance, the business life connection. So we'll be going to Jim, and, and we'll do a little bit of a, a bio intro to, uh, with Jim later on in the show. In fact, I'd like to have him tell you some of the things that he's done. I've known Jim now for about 15 years, uh, and I think the, uh, the, the the amazing thing about Jim Cusimano is not only is his intelligence, which, as you'll come to see, is quite remarkable, uh, something that brought him to the attention of the highest levels of Exxon Corporation when he was a research scientist, with his Ph.D. in, in, in chemical, uh, physical chemistry. But uh, the fact that in his Ph.D. thesis, many people don't know this, he actually did a thesis uh, more than 40 years ago on fuel cells, which, of course, are now people are beginning to realize how important they are. So Jim's a futurist. He's a brilliant scientist. He's an extraordinary businessman who built a company from scratch to over $1 billion value on the, on the public markets in Silicon Valley. Uh, I, I won't keep going. He's a uh, successful Hollywood producer, and as you said, he runs a hotel, a Chateau Maselli, which actually is a castle, uh, which was the home of a ruling family of Europe, the, fellow, the folks who actually invented the European postal system. And he's turned that 1,500-and-something-odd-year-old, but the building was built in 15-something, and he's turned it into the greenest hotel, a five-star hotel, the greenest hotel in Europe. So a uh, very interesting guy. can't wait to get to him. But before we get there... One of the things we're going to talk to Jim and, and, and as we introduce him is going to be his series that he's been doing in Prague, 
and I'm delighted in the book he gave the Academy credit for helping to co-launch this series, basically on inspired leadership. And the reason that's so important why Jim's on the topic today is because one of the things we want to really talk about at the outset is the lack of inspired leadership in the United States right now. Some of you in the show, hopefully many of you who heard last month's show, where I really took President Obama to task for a variety of things. Um, one of them was if the sequester went through, I, I indicated that it would have a depressive effect on the economy. That was a minority opinion then. It's now acceptable. It's, it's considered that's what happened, frankly. Uh, but, but the real issue with Obama is that he has taken, I believe, and snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. What do I mean by that, and why does it matter to our listeners? I'm seeing a period of incredible political instability just ahead. There was a victory pending, I think, and, and I would call the, the victory was a victory of the forces of progress versus the forces of regression. And those forces of progress watched as the Tea Party Republicans and the more traditional Republicans fought for the soul of the Republican Party. And it's become increasingly clear that the traditional Republican elements are trying to take their party back. It's also increasingly clear that the Tea Party Republicans are destined to fight to the last man, so to speak, and woman, to hold on to any Republican seat they can grab or keep, and that they'll do so at the expense of a Republican candidate who might be so Tea Party um, odd that they won't be able to survive a general election. So in the face of this opportunity, which would have given Obama, who ran initially as a progressive president, and even in his, in his re-election campaign, uh, ran as a progressive, it would have given him a chance to watch the Republican Party kind of splinter down the middle. And over time, he could have been the, one, the leader of a nation that for the first time since, say, let's say, World War II, shifted its priorities back towards domestic strengths and away from um, military adventurism. So one of the flaws I see, and I want people to start watching for this when they read news stories, one of the flaws I see coming out of Washington right now, and particularly out of the Obama White House, is the acceptance, the belief that there is a deficit problem, because there isn't. There's a jobs problem. I urge people to read virtually anything that Paul Krugman writes. I urge people to read the stuff that Joseph Stiglitz writes. And what you'll find is, and it's quite accurate, is that we have a situation in America today where we are starving for leadership. So how did Obama snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? Well, if he had have played his hand properly, in my humble opinion, between now and 2014, the Democrats would have picked up a majority of Congress. Once they have that majority, all of the silliness of the last 10 years and a great deal of the silliness of the last 30 years could have been reversed, meaning we could have begun to reassert the primacy of taking care of our children, our educational systems, and our elderly, and our veterans. And that primacy would have taken over larger and larger portions of our budget so that the disproportionate amount that we spend on military <clears throat> would be able to come down. That well, combination let me, let me is, I think, where, where the victory could have been. Uh, let me ask Chris correction on this. And just as an example, there have been surveys in the press that somewhere between 75 and 80 percent 85% of the American people are calling for real, serious gun control. And here we have a president who has done, and a Congress has done nothing but even talk about 
simply just having background checks. They got rid of the assault weapon ban. They got rid of everything. And even so, their campaign, they're pleading for a vote. Does that fit our image of leadership? Well, no, I think that... I think that the, my point earlier about the lack of leadership is that when you have a president that's such a poor leader, last last month I called him a terrible executive because he doesn't act like a chief executive. He acts like a mediator in chief. And a mediator will take the two positions that people stake out as the, as, as, the, as, the, as the balancing point and try to find the place in between. The problem is that the country was dragged so far to the right with crazy austerity thinking and with – uh, tea Party uh, ideas that just didn't hold water, and yet if you want to see how bad they are, look at what the basket case that Britain's created for itself, voluntarily shooting both his feet off. Uh, look at what Europe's created in Spain, in Greece, in Portugal, in Ireland. All of that in the, in the pursuit of an austerity program, which we now know without a question doesn't work, and we were, we, we've been playing with that same theory here as if it had merit. Now, when the president can take an issue like gun control, where, and I believe it's as high as 90% of background checks are, and have problems getting a law passed when 90, 80 to 90% of the people are in favor of it, it screams lack of leadership. In other words, there's a thing in the law, res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. When a president of the United States can't get something done that 80-plus percent of the people want done, it means the guy doing it is not the right guy. Now, why that is the case, I'm not sure. I think it has to do with Obama's unique personal history, I think it has to do with his desire to be the law professor-in-chief rather than the executive-in-chief. But for whatever reason, the country is not running as well as it needs to be. And when the pressures of the Republican Tea Party agenda impacted us for the last six years, rather than creating a countervailing force, which ultimately would have won the hearts and minds of the American people, he actually succumbed to the, to the, to the um, belief, correct, incorrect belief, that he had to somehow meet people halfway, even if the people he was meeting were so far off the chart that you couldn't get halfway there without going off the chart itself. Now, uh, the other example, by the way, in gun control, uh, I think that uh, there's no question they will get a vote on that. I think that the Republicans are beginning to crack on that. But because the president is now so weak, can you imagine a sitting president receiving 2,300,000 signatures from his own party saying, we will do anything we can to stop you, and we will take a primary challenge to any Democrat that supports you. Can you imagine that president not stopping and going, oh boy, we better look at this more carefully. And yet, when you look at the president's budget, which he has released, the key assumption in it, which he's holding to, and I fundamentally think is absolutely incorrect, what he's saying is if we don't change and reduce benefits in Social Security, the system will go broke in 2030. First of all, that's not our problem. Our problem is jobs in 2013. Second of all, there is an extremely easy way to solve the problem without doing benefit cuts. And everybody, including the president, clearly labeled chained CPI as a benefit cut. So he's cutting benefits to seniors. Why? Because he's not willing to raise the cap on Social Security from $113,000. So right now, if you, pay, if you make $113,000, you pay social, into the Social Security care system up to $113,000. After that, you pay nothing. Why? Why is that a sacred cow? Why can't we say that people who make up to $200,000 a year would pay some small portion of their income into Social Security, just like you and everybody else does who makes below that amount? Well, the answer is that the president has accepted the belief, which is false in my opinion, that he has to um, reduce benefits 
in order to keep the system solvent. In fact, when raising the cap would do it. I can name two other things, if you want, that would also keep Social Security not only solvent, but flush and growing. For example, I don't think his Democratic base would object to means testing, meaning if you're wealthy enough and the ratio of what you get from Social Security bears as a small percentage of your total income, then you should be reduced in what you get because you really don't need the money. Let me give you an example. My so I'm now 66. My Social Security check, should I choose to collect it, which I'm still working, so I don't, but my Social Security check would be such a small percentage of my income that, frankly, if it, I didn't get it, it wouldn't change my spending pattern. It wouldn't change my lifestyle. It wouldn't change whether my kids can get out of college. It doesn't change anything because it's just too small an amount of money. But to somebody who's worked their whole life and is 66 and really needs to retire, worked in a tough job where their, their body took the, the, the brunt of their work as well as their mind, if they want to retire at 65 and have a meaningful Social Security check so that they can live out their years with some dignity, my sense is let's focus on that. Last point. In addition to the Social Security issue that he's focusing on and I think solving in the exact wrong way, we have a bigger issue with elderly in this country. Less than 10% of the, of the people my generation, 65 and older, and the ones that are going to be coming 65 in the next 8, 10, 15 years, all of us baby boomers, less than 10% of us have any way to take care of ourselves for long-term care. No insurance, and clearly the government isn't prepared to do it at this time. Do we, have we even thought about what the health care costs of that will be? Well, in, if you juxtapose that against his desire to limit benefits in Social Security, you say, wait a minute, Social Security is like a one-two-penny problem, which you can fix with rage in the cap. Seven percent of the American elderly for the next 10 years not having long-term care, and somebody's going to have to pay for that, or they're going to be dying in the streets and stacked like cordwood, that's a $1 problem, meaning it's, it's 10 to 15 to 20 to 100 times bigger than the problem that he's addressing in Social Security. So for all of these reasons, I, I believe the president's personal sentiments are good. I think he actually means well. I think he resists being an executive. Uh, the one area where he appears to like being an executive is in foreign policy. I certainly see no problems with what he's doing in foreign policy. I think he's doing a, a fairly good job, although I do point out that he's been the reason why the Syrian opposition was not given weapons sooner. And by the end of May, there's a U.N. resolution, which I think will be allowed to lapse, where the French and the British are getting together and saying to John Kerry as recently as yesterday, look, we're going to have to give these guys some weapons, because if we don't, this thing just gets bloodier and lasts longer and is a more destabilizing mess in the Middle East. As I understand it, as of yesterday, Kerry was telegraphing that the president's position was changing on that, which I think is good. So let me wrap by saying this. I feel that the president is not leading us in an effective way. He's attempting to mediate us as a nation, and we desperately need leadership. So in my hope is that in looking at this topic of inspired leadership, which is what I'm asking the president to be. Step up and be the chief executive that you were elected to be. In other words, because in our system, there is only one chief executive at a time, and you're it, Mr. President. Please step up and give us some inspired leadership. Now, with that, I'd like to uh, let's bring to Jim on. Let's bring Jim on. And, and, and let him talk a little bit about some of the programs he's been running at Chateau Maselli in, in Prague, um, and that addresses this very point. And I believe, Jim, you're on now. And uh, well, first, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, it's an incredible background. You were five lives. Um, so take it away, Jim. 
Hello? Your analysis, but um, but going over to uh, to your uh, request, Howard, um, let me just say, I'll tell you what my background is. I like to think of myself as having lived five lives. And um, I basically came out of a, um, a very large family. I'm the oldest of ten children. My father was a postman, so we didn't have very much money growing up in North Elizabeth, which uh, which is now the uh, runways for uh, International Newark International Airport. I uh, decided that I wanted to uh, give up a paper route and selling fruit and vegetables in the Italian market. I wanted an inside job, so I took piano lessons and uh, started a rock and roll group. So I found out uh, on that end that um, I really, really liked entertainment and enjoyed. I enjoyed getting up there and singing, and eventually without going into the whole story, became the lead singer for the Royal Teens who recorded short shorts, and we recorded short, short twists and, and several albums. And in that part of my life as a teenager, uh, for more than 10 years, I traveled with the likes of Chuck Berry, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, all of the pioneers of early rock and roll. And uh, so that was it was quite fun because we were young kids and going through high school, college, and that sort of thing. The other love I had in my life uh, was precipitated by my father, who bought me a chemistry set when I was uh, for the eighth, my eighth Christmas. I was just about to be nine years old, and uh, after I went through the the business of making fireworks and rockets and everything else, stink bombs that boys do, I checked a book out of the library, which was a library which said uh, 1,000 recipes, and these were things like cosmetics, adhesives, uh, ink, you name it. That you could make back in those days when I was growing up in the in the fifties and and early sixties as a youngster, um, you could make you could buy these chemicals in the hardware or in the pharmacy. And so I had this little laboratory, started making cosmetics and selling them in the neighborhood, and people were actually paying for this stuff, and probably because they uh, felt sorry for this uh, eight nine year old boy who was uh, doing this in the neighborhood. But the thing that triggered my soul is that I was so excited that somebody was willing to pay for this, quote, technology that I was developing, that the money I brought home to my, my folks, and it wasn't the money. It was really, uh, I felt I was, I was doing, even though it may not have been, I felt I was doing some good for the world. So at that early age, I discovered two things. One, I liked entertainment, and two, I loved science and technology. And in my book, which we'll talk about later, that's one of the things I think is critical, is to find out your fundamental essence, what's inside of you that you're good at than most of the people around you, and connect it with a need in the world. So after rock and roll and uh, getting a Ph.D. in chemistry and some business studies at at Harvard and Stanford and and then a a fellowship at Cambridge in England, I I became um, a research scientist for Exxon. And um, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. They were starting a corporate research lab. And so I, after three years, became a director of research for catalytic science and technology, which is my expertise. And as, uh, uh, as Ronaldo said earlier, that's basically what my thesis was, is was in catalytic technology. And so it was exciting, and we did a lot of wonderful things. But uh, honestly, I, I just my, my soul didn't fit into a large bureaucratic corporation, the largest company in the world at the time, even though I learned a heck of a lot there. And so uh, there were a number of things that precipitated my leaving, going to Silicon Valley and wanting to be where the action was. And with a friend of mine and a professor from Stanford, we started Catalytica as a consulting company. 
But um, this was during, uh, we started Catalytica Associates in 1974 when I left Exxon. That was, uh, interest rates were 21%, as I recall. Um, this was right after the Arab embargo and when uh, there was no oil going to countries that supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War, countries like the U.S., Europe, Japan. So there was an energy crisis, and you folks probably remember, I think you're old enough to remember, that there were lines uh, we both do. <laughs> for miles, people trying to get two gallons of gasoline. So uh, my strategy with Ricardo Levy, my partner in crime from, uh, from Exxon, and my closest friend, uh, and business partner for almost 30 years, which is really incredible because it's rare that you can find a business partner where that lasts, that friendship lasts that long. We uh, said, look, there's a, an energy crisis going on. Let's start by consulting for the government, the precursor to the Department of Energy, ERDA, uh, which was the Energy Research Development Administration. And sure enough, we got a $100,000 contract from them, a $100,000 contract from the Electric Power Research Institute in Palo Alto, and we were off and running. We had to learn something about cash flow. We thought we were going to get paid as we go. But as you know, with the government, uh, you don't get paid till you finish the project. So we had to establish some relationships with banks. But ultimately, we got through that. And and over oh, wait, 10 just, years... Just, Jim, just, I, I want to inject one thing here because one of the... Because uh, I want you to continue. But Ricardo Levy, uh, who I've had the good fortune through you to meet, uh, is one of the more interesting men I've, I've come to know. And, and it's not just that you've had a 30-year relationship with him. Uh, the depth of his thinking, the quality of, of who he is, and his expertise right. really on entrepreneurship. You want to just mention his book? Is, uh, Ricardo had an interesting sure. book. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you recall the title, but it's it's a short book, and it's it, he's written a book about the spirit of what we went through. And it's I recommend it to anyone who's interested in entrepreneurism. And it's uh, Letters to a Young Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. Right. Yeah, and it's fantastic. It's uh, it, you can read it probably in one or two evenings, and it's about our tr our travels and our journey together, and what the critical issues were uh, from a uh, let's say a personal and spiritual point of view to really build an important company. Great. So, yeah, thank you for throwing that. But keep going. I didn't want to break so, into your. Uh, no, that's your, okay. Your, so we we said, look, we'll be in consulting, and and this was our strategic plan. It was uh, like two lines. We'll go into consulting, we'll get profitable, and then someday we'll figure out how to do contract research and start working for industry, and if we're lucky, we'll get into manufacturing. That was the strategic plan, I mean, for two young guys and a secretary at Catalytica Associates. So we did build the company uh, up in between 74 until 1983. We were making about uh, $15, $16 million a year. We had 150 people. And then we made a very difficult decision. It may not sound difficult uh, now, but it was extremely difficult. Ricardo and I and Professor Boudar, who was uh, the professor from Stanford, who was uh, he's deceased now, but he was a world authority in catalytic science. He was the guy that introduced us to all the heavy hitters in industry and government, opened the door, and then Rick and I went in and did the sales job and then did the work. Um, he, uh, he basically... Uh, uh, the, the, the three of us decided that we were going to raise venture capital, but the three of us owned the company, a third, a third, a third. Now, when you have a baby like that and it's profitable and you own it and you call the shots, the minute you start raising venture capital is the minute you're going to begin to give up control. So you have to have really good faith in your capability 
Otherwise, you get booted out of the company eventually because somebody else is going to own the majority. Because the, generally what happens with venture capital, uh, you may either be bought out or you go public. And, uh, and so you have a number of shareholders. But we went through that and we said, look, this is the only way we can find our dream. And I have to tell you, uh, and I, I know this probably is how to manage your money properly, but um, maybe we were foolish because – we never thought about money from the point of view of making a lot of money. We were driven, incredibly intensely driven, by our passion to follow our dream, which was to use, and it was a very simple dream, it was to use catalytic science to make products cheaper and cleaner. We were doing green technology before uh, it was, there was even a, a label, green technology. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jim, in that regard, you know, that's, that, uh, we've talked on the show in the past because of my good friend Robert Schwartz of Terrytown uh, and all the research he did over all the years, and it's been, it's been confirmed many, many times over. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs, true entrepreneurs, are almost never incentivized by the, the pot of gold at the end of the invention. They're, always, they're, they're driven by a passion, as you just said. And I think it's important mm-hmm. for our listeners to know that whether or not you're going to end up being as successful as you were building a billion-dollar public company like Catalytica or whether they're just going to be able to, to, to build the hula hoop they want to have to play with, it's their passion that will get them there, not any other external force. It's, it's, also, like some, it's, also, it's also something else, uh, Ronaldo, that I think I'd like to put my finger on that's related to what you just said. The passion not only gets them there, but the passion gives them incredible energy and fun on the journey. If you don't have the passion, you don't enjoy the journey. And that's why we were, you know, we had problems, and we could talk about them if you like. But um, basically, uh, building a company and doing things that were positive for the world, both economically and ecologically, was so exciting um, that I, I could not put that passion in words. And that's how, why we enjoyed the journey. Also, that's why we were patient. Because from you know, 10 years, 74 to 83, 84, then we started raising venture capital. We, we weren't uh, trying to go public or trying to get a, a, a liquidation in any way, shape, or form. We enjoyed the journey. And all the way to the very end, we enjoyed it. So in, in, uh, in, and to take to that point, to that end point, uh, what happened was um, after we raised the venture capital, um, we uh, started uh, working on what I call a number of home runs. These were really tough problems like uh, putting natural gas through a tube with a catalyst in it, coming out with fuels the other end so that you didn't have to have LNG uh, terminals anymore and you could transport a fuel as uh, uh, with with low pressure, no refrigeration, uh, direct combustion of fuels with absolutely no pollution. I mean, these were these were really home run things. And so, what happened was uh, our shareholders started to say, you know, this is going to take a long time, and they were right. So I said to Rick, you know, we got to find something else strategically. We got to show that we're capable of solving some real issues. Um, we got to hit a couple of singles instead of just all home runs. I call that my single strategy. And so I looked around, and I saw the pharmaceutical industry. I said, you know, these guys are making molecules in the laboratory to test in clinical trials. And they don't care how they make them because it's an organic chemist. It may take 10, 15 steps. And those 10, 15 steps, even if you get 90% conversion for each step, you take 0.9 to the 10 or 15th power, the yield is very, very low, plus they use lots of toxic materials because this is done in a lab and they just need to make stuff to test on mice and dogs and et cetera. But then 
what happens is they get a hit and it's going to phase three clinical trials and they say, oh my God, we're going to have to manufacture this stuff. Somebody's got to develop a manufacturing process. Well, that's where we came in and I went to Pfizer and told them we could probably do that and they didn't even know who we were. So they gave us two or three of their toughest uh, developmental drugs. One of them is, is um, commercial now for treating Alzheimer's disease called Aricept. And we began to work on these things and demonstrate to them that we could make a process that would be cheaper and cleaner. And so uh, Pfizer then said, hey, we want to put $15 million into your company and have access to your know-how. So we did that. We, we, we took the money from them plus the venture capital. And lo and behold, uh, in 1993, we started to look really good. So our board said, hey, you ought to go public. And we did. We went public on the NASDAQ. And um, within the next two or three years, we raised over $200 million, and we bought a plant in East Palo Alto. Now, I don't know your listeners, if they're mainly California, they probably know that East Palo Alto is not Palo Alto. Uh, it's a, it's a, at least when I was uh, working in that area, we had a research no, it's, still a, it's a very disadvantaged area. Yeah, it's very economically disadvantaged. disadvantaged. So um, there was a plant there owned by Sandoz uh, Pharmaceuticals. And the ground was contaminated, and uh, they were going to try to get out, and they were going to have to clean up the site. So I went to the CEO of the company, and I said, you know, if you literally give us this plant, seal the ground, we'll, we'll take the plant over, and you can defer having to clean this up until uh, we're gone, because uh, that's the, what the rules were at the law sure. at that time. And he said, wow, it's yours. So pretty much he gave us the plant. And I went to Rose Gibson, who was the mayor uh, at, at that time, and East Palo Alto then was about, I don't know, 50% uh, um, uh, Latino and 50% African Americans. And I said, Rose, we're going to try to hire as many people as we can from, your, from East Palo Alto, and we're going to train them. And uh, I convinced her of that, and I got Tom Campbell, who was the congressman at the time, uh, to vo vouch for me. And we did it, and we, we trained a lot of these people, and I would say 80% of the people there in our small East Palo Alto plant uh, were from East Palo Alto. Then what happened is the plant got so successful, we demonstrated we knew how to manufacture, uh, we needed more capacity. And so I looked around, and I spent a year, and I found in 1997, uh, Greenville, North Carolina, there was a beautiful plant that was going to be sold, uh, by Glaxo Welcome, now GlaxoSmithKline. And it was huge, though. <laughs> I mean, um, this, this plant uh, had 1,300 employees. We were 150 employees, okay? So um, Rick and I, and Ricardo is the genius at putting this kind of stuff together, the financial uh, arguments, uh, we went to see uh, Howard Hoffman, who is the managing director of Morgan Stanley Capital Partners, and we convinced him to loan us $300 million to buy the plant and a place on our board of directors. Now, we did have some help because by then we had convinced Barry Bloom, who was on the board of Pfizer and the executive vice president of the company, Ernie Mario, who had been CEO of Glaxo, Paul Cook, who was the founder and CEO of Raychem Corporation, and Carl Girassi, who was – with Syntex and, uh, and actually is the father of the birth control pill, and Tom Gutschel, who was executive vice president. So we had a great board, and they worked with us in Hoffman, and we bought that plant. We, we competed with five multi-billion dollar companies. One of them was Bayer in Germany, 
Uh, we competed with DSM Pharmaceuticals in Holland. And we won it and because Ricardo and I got on a plane. We went to see the CEO of Glaxo. And we said, you know what? When these guys take over your plant, they are going to let a lot of people go. And they're going to bring in their own people. Um, we are going to keep every single person. And we're going to give everybody, including the janitor. It, he may only get one share, stock options in the company. By the way, Jim, and, you know, uh, what you pioneered there today is called conscious capitalism. And well, one of the things we talk about we, the show We didn't have a label for it then. Right. That's what it's called uh, today. You, you did it. You just did it. <laughs> but, and, and, and in fact... And you demonstrated um, our other topic. Uh, Sir, Sir Richard Sykes, who, leadership. Who, well, you know, we, we didn't think about it that way because we did have consultants that helped us learn about the sensitivity of employees, how to brainstorm, how to solve problems together, how to trust people, how to empower them. But we never thought of it under the label of uh, conscious capitalism then. But now, of course, as I look back, I know it is, and it wasn't just me, that, that, um, that feeling, that soul of conscious capitalism-inspired leadership, it, it wasn't just Rick and I. It went throughout the entire organization. And if it didn't, if, if somebody didn't fit, they either were let go or they quit because they didn't, they didn't feel comfortable in the org. That was our culture. And so here we are, we buy this company, and compete effectively against uh, all of these other large companies. And we went, uh, in, in one fell swoop, we went from, uh, the, I guess it was $15 million to, uh, well, almost $300 million, then $375 million. And then the, the next year we got up to $500 million because we got uh, Glaxo to give us a base load. What we were doing is two things. We were contract manufacturing for many, many pharmaceutical companies, their drugs, because we could manufacture them better than they could. And so they would give us the drugs. We made the world supply of AZT for treating AIDS for Glaxo. We made Lenoxin for heart disease. We made uh, Zyban for, for smoking cessation. Um, the, the Joxin for cardiovascular disease. Probably, um, I would say, more than 35 international companies. We made drugs for them. And then Pfizer and a couple of other companies had us working on their new drugs using catalytic technology to make them cheaper and cleaner. And I want to say that we had smart people in our, in our company. And I want to say that Rick is smart, and I feel pretty, pretty good about myself too, but we're not geniuses. And, the, and we had a couple of geniuses in the company. But I think what it is is when you get inspired leadership as a thread going through the company – the energy that it creates among human beings allows them to reach a capacity uh, that they themselves never even realized they could reach. Because let's face it, Howard and, and Ronaldo, we all know that we underestimate our capabilities. We know that that's a, that's a premise that ever, people have proven before. And so when you have this inspired capability going through the company, people are just they're, they're doing things that, you, you couldn't imagine. They're solving problems that could not be solved. And, oh, it's and just, that, is that part of what you mean by the title of your book, Balance the Business Life Connection, that well, you're doing things that are the right thing to do and therefore it's more in balance? Is that what you mean? No, no I mean something else about that, but let me tell you what I mean by that. By balance, um, the, reason I, I, the reason I wrote balance is because in founding the public companies that I did found with Ricardo and, and our other colleagues – 
I wrote this, the book to offer a proven route, because I can only talk about what we did. I, I can't, I'm not a consultant and have access to all kinds of other information about other companies, but I can talk about a proven route to how to find your purpose and your passion. And when you do that, you create a meaningful life, lasting fulfillment, and also you become an inspired leader. And in, in doing this, you have to, I believe, you have to have balance between your personal and your professional lives. The most um, successful people in our company, in terms of what they were able to cap- uh, capable of doing, they had relatively good balance, long-term balance. I don't mean every single day, but I mean over the long term, if you integrate over time, um, their personal lives and their professional lives were in balance. And, and, the, and the way I show how to do that in the book is to use what I call a values-based life strategic plan. Before you go to that, though, I I was actually thinking of your Chapter 4, which you titled Lasting Happiness. And you started by quoting Eleanor Roosevelt when you say happiness is not a goal, it is a byproduct. And then you go through talking about what lasting happiness, what that formula is. And it struck me that the way you ran your companies, uh, the way you treat your employees, the way you think about things is that form of lasting happiness. It gave you happiness to do it. It also produces an enormous amount of success. And that's exactly correct, Ronaldo. I I think you know if I um, this is this is uh, you know I've talked to Lance Secretan about this before. You know, love is a word that you you almost never use in the business arena, although it's changing, thank God. And I think if you show and by love, you know, it, we only have one word in the uh, uh, in the English language uh, for this kind of thing. But if you go to things like Sanskrit, I think there's 89 words for the for love, or Greek has four. And uh, there's a number of, but if you care about your employees so much, like they're, they're, they're special to you. I mean, and you, dem- I don't mean you make believe you care. You actually find a way in your soul and your heart to care for them that they can succeed and, and, and be, be better than, in fact, a, a good way to look at that is that, that inspired leaders serve others by helping them reach their human potential. Uh, they, they're there to. They're really, as you have pointed out before, they're servants. They're servant leaders, and they not only when these people not only exhibit outstanding performance, but they make the world a better place. And then you feel good. You feel good. They feel good. The world feels good. It's it's like a win-win-win. And that's what we found over the long haul. And I don't mean that every day of our life was that way. And that's why you have to have this inspired spirit to get you through some of the tough points. And every company has them, you know, no matter whether you have inspired leadership or not. Okay, so if we applied inspired leadership to um, the, the entry piece we did, the opening segue right. with, uh, on the present, how would you – and please don't hesitate to disagree. By the way, for people who don't know, I should disclose my bias here. Jim and I are co-authors of a book seven years ago called Freedom from East Oil. Jim's been a member of the Academy for many, many years. So <clears throat> I'm a big Jim fan, and I haven't rehearsed this question with him. I'd like to get your take, honestly, Jim. What do you yeah. think about whether or not the president is acting as an inspired leader, given what you're seeing? No, I I think um, here's you know I'm I'm sort of judging him from a distance because I'm I'm basically a European now. I mean I'm living here for right. ten years, and uh, I curse read the newspaper papers every day, the Herald Tribune, and uh, and I watch the television. I think what has happened in Washington, and it's happened to Obama and to a number of other people. Um, and you probably know some exceptions that I really love to know who they are. I think it's got over politicized to a point where it's like gamesmanship. Nobody has the courage 
to stand up and say, ladies and gentlemen, here's the data. This is what we must do. Follow me. Believe me, if we do this, and, and by the way, we may have to suffer. You may have to suffer a little bit. I can't take care of everybody. But if we do this, we can come out the other end uh, whole and, and have a promise, not just for us, but for your kids and your grandchildren. Nobody has has been able to come up with that kind of inspiration because I think they worry about, and I, I, I had hoped Obama would do that because he's in his second term. What does he have to lose? And I was hoping that he would be powerful and say, okay, now we're going to do it, damn it. And, uh, you know, I, as you have, I, I haven't seen that. I've seen him worry about how these decisions are going to be made and, and giving in and probably going the wrong way for political reasons. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I, again, I didn't rehearse the question with you, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and I think that's why he ended up with, you know, in less than 48 hours, 2,300,000 of his supporters dropped a petition on his head. That's a big uh-huh. number, even in America. 2,300,000 yes. yes. signed that petition in 48 hours or less. You would think that would have been a wake-up call, but apparently it hasn't so far. Uh, and, that's, and that's where I think, because the reason I'm pointing out that is part of inspirational leadership is you've got to be willing to lead, you've got to be willing to hear, you've got to be willing to feel. I think the place where he breaks down is his willingness to lead. That Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, here's where we've got to get to kind of thing. Right. The impression exactly I get that, is that he's that's executive for input from two sides and thinks that his leadership is putting two sides together and that's exactly the opposite of what we seem to be needing in this time in history. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. you're right, Howard. In fact, think about um, uh, here's what I think. I think every inspired leader, everyone, I, I don't know any in- exceptions, they have found their life purpose. And I go back to that formula that you uh, that I call my lifelong fulfillment formula that you alluded to earlier. When you find that thing inside of you, that piece that you're really good at and you connect it with the need of the world that makes the world a little bit better, you find your sense of purpose. And when you have that, and it may be that uh, President Obama really doesn't have that, but when you find it, the passion in you goes, I don't, you don't have to be over-charismatic. You can sh- demonstrate it even if you're kind of an even guy or gal. The passion in, the, in you goes up so substantially, and everybody wants to be connected with passion. Everybody wants to be part of that team. And that's, I think, what's missing is maybe maybe he and a number of other key uh, politicians in in, uh, in the not just in the United States, but I see it here in Europe as well as well have not followed their found their 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 essence and connected it and found their purpose and, and demonstrate the passion and the energy that makes people want to follow them. I, I don't unless, see it unless, unless his passion, unfortunately, is a passion to mediate, which at this time is. A, a, a skill that, that, that unfortunately creates the, the opposite result of what he wants. I'm 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 mindful of the time on this. And, and, and Jim, I could listen to you talk for another two hours, and it wouldn't be it'd be a joy. <laughs> I'm Likewise, sorry if I've so, gone in the wrong yeah. direction. <laughs> no, 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 no. What I'd like to do is this. I, I want to invite you back to the show. I want people to know that we're going to bring you back. We've only covered, I think, at this point, three of your lives. We've still got uh, famous author, which we're going to talk about in a second, a little bit more, and we've still got uh, motion picture producer, which we'll have to wait for another day. But That's what I'd fine. love to do is g- let you give people. So I really want them to experience. I've read the book, as you know, and in fact, I wrote a, an endorsement of Jim's book, "Balance the Business Life Connection." Jim, where can they go to learn more about the book or to get it? 
Yeah, you can learn a lot about the book at the book's website, and you can even buy it from there, not just from uh, Chateau Mazzelli, which is here in, in Prague, but you can buy it from Amazon, from Barnes & Noble, from other booksellers, and they're all on this site. And the site is www3. and then the title of the book, Balance the Business Life Connection. Dot com all one word no hyphens no nothing so it's balance the business life connection dot com and if you go yeah, there you dot three first you said www dot three then no www dot dot you know just the the uh, the, okay, the, got it. the traditional uh, beginning okay good okay for, and then balance the business life connection dot com that's correct absolutely great and and you can learn a lot about the book there i don't know if you want me uh to to say anything about that but i um if you do i can probably summarize it uh in about uh, two or three minutes good to summarize it jim and then uh, i think it's great for people to know that i mean i'll give i'll lead i'll tell you the book is part one is jim's life which you've heard some of it and you can get from this interview how fascinating jim's life has been um i've always been amazed frankly at this man's ability he has the touch of crocius whatever he turns becomes sparkling gold and uh i know really it's, it's quite a, it's a light to work with jim because uh, he, he has this, this this gift and this passion and this ability to execute which is extraordinarily rare and so this is a story about his five unique careers uh which i would list as you know young teen rock star uh research scientist uh business executive mogul uh, uh author and uh and in the in the, co- in the combination of author i would also put motion picture producer very successfully in 50 countries and last but not least the the guy who built and runs probably the best and greenest hotel in the world those are your five careers. None of them have anything to do with each other, except they all have Jim in common. Well, I want to mention one quick thing, uh, because I first met Jim close to 15 years ago also, when we were creating the Ojai Film Festival, which Jim was instrumental in supporting. But at the time, he was, out of the blue, going to produce a movie. And having worked <laughs> in the industry, I'm looking at this like, how is he going to do this? And yet, nonetheless, he had a great script. He applied all of his incredible passion and business skills and had a very successful movie that came out. Um, not something we're going to get into in detail now, um, but I think you, this is a must-read book. Uh, if you truly want to be inspired about using your creativity, following your path, um, and becoming successful, hopefully, in what it is you set out to do. And Jim, I want to give you an of that. I want to acknowledge, Jim, that when you tell your life story in the first chapters, uh, the first part of the book, uh, mm-hmm. you do it, I think, with um, a lot of honesty and a minimum of ego, and I really want to acknowledge that. And then the balance of the book really helps people understand what you learned from that process. And if you'd have been successful in only one or two careers, that would be an invaluable book. But to have done it in five, to show what the common denominators are in these very disparate activities – all of which yielded not just success, but dramatic success. Um, and, uh, you know, people I'm sure realize by now that you're very financially well off. Uh, you're a man who's able to live whatever passion he chooses. Uh, you're a man who's created a great speaking series over in Prague. Uh, uh, and I'm delighted that we were able to contribute in the early days, and hopefully the Academy can become a bigger part of it in the future. So all of those sure. things, kudos to you, Jim. And I really want to have you back on the program if you'll do it. Absolutely. I, I enjoy it. And, you know, the, my whole sense of purpose now, it's, it slightly changes. I've always liked to, to build people and, and give them the opportunity to do great things. That's the reason I wrote the book. In writing to get royalties, most of the I want 
Jim, I think you're learn. going to break up. We've got a slight technical oh, issue here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what, what I want to do is I want to try to learn. I want to try to share with people at least some things that might be helpful to them in either finding or stab or building on their uh, sense of purpose and uh, being successful in whatever they want to do. Well, Jim, this has been great. Absolutely great having you on the show. We've run. Uh, a lot longer than we originally planned. Ronaldo, do you still want to stick to our model and go to the lightning round? Yeah, let's, let's, let's. I think we should let Jim go. Thanks so much, Jim, because we, we, part of the show, we like to always give people very practical advice on what they can do to make their own financial situation better in these sure. perilous times. So we're going to sign off to do that, but we will bring you back on. I'm sure people are going to want to have questions. Please send them in ahead of time so we can ask Jim for you what your questions are. In the meantime, get the book, read the book, and your questions will be even more to the point. So thanks, Jim, for joining us all the way My from Prague. My pleasure. Prague. Much Jim, appreciated. Thank you very much, and hopefully Take I'll care, see you Howard. in Prague Take care, Howard. Take care, Ronaldo. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Right. Bye-bye Take now. Take care now. Bye-bye. With that, Ronaldo, we do want to move to our Wasn't lightning round. Wasn't that great, Howard? But I'll mention real quickly that if people would like to email us in with uh, questions or comments, uh, that address is info at worldbusiness.org. Hey, Howard, wasn't that, isn't that an inspiring story? I mean, I could just listen to him talk for hours, candidly. Jim is such an inspiring an story. Man. Truly, yeah. truly, truly. Amazing guy, and we were lucky to have him on the show. And I hope people take us up on the invitation to send us in questions. I'd love for you to be able to ask somebody of that ability, um, you know, to build a billion-dollar company from nothing as a research scientist, and you heard the story in some detail, uh, it all by itself is, is an extraordinary testament of what one man is capable of. So uh, please send in your questions. We'd love to have him back again in a few months, and we'll ask him what you would like to hear from him more on. Uh, okay, just to include that, one last footnote. Uh, years ago, I worked with Robert Wise, the film director who did West Side Story, Sound of Music, and Robert Wise's ingredients for success in Hollywood and any endeavor was what he called the three P's, which I think Jim Cusimano has manifested in in the off the scale. And those three P's were passion, passion, and passion. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Well, that's great. Um, okay, so Howard, um, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, first of all, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned, as you could tell from my opening remarks, about my ability to see into the future much more than a year. But I feel very comfortable about that. I'd like to just update people um, on a couple of things. First of all, we said on this show either one or two shows ago, one or two months ago, that we felt that um, the, if the sequester kicked in, which it did, it must have been the last show, that um, the, the, the result would be a depression of the economy. That would, We dropped from what I thought was the 3% run rate or more that we were on down to about a 15 to 2% run rate, and we wouldn't recapture that 3% run rate until the problems associated with the sequester were fully digested by the fourth quarter. Uh, when, I, when I gave that opinion, I was in a small minority of economists who thought that. Uh, I, I noticed last about in the last week or so, uh, the, the vast majority of economists have now all come to accept that. Now, why that's important is this. What I was telegraphing to people was the sequester was not free. It was going to hurt people, and when it hurt people, it was going to hurt the economy. I just saw a study yesterday that four out of ten Americans have now had some adverse effect from the sequester. Four out of ten. That's quite a bit, 40%. So what I want people to realize is – around these 47%. <laughs> right. So so what I want people to realize is there are going to be these pressures. Now, the economy will continue to accelerate from here out because the bulk of the sequester negative activity is already in the pipeline. 
and is able to be adjusted for. And some of it's already being taken care of. For example, the 800,000 employees, uh, civilian employees of the military are not going to get fired in the next couple of months, which is going to help the economy. Um, there are other things on the horizon, like the immigration bill, which for no good reason other than politics could create a 3 to $5 billion gusher of additional border guards, even though right now we have net out-migration of, of, of immigrants. So there are things on the horizon that could give the economy some lift. There are some things on the horizon that will continue to depress or hold it back. All those taken together, I want to reaffirm, this economy is going to grow in real terms at about, I'm going to guess, say, 2%. Um, yeah, at least 2% between now and the fourth quarter. And there's a possibility the fourth quarter could be much better, meaning it could start to trend up to a 3% annualized rate, if, in fact, we start getting some leadership in Washington. And right now, I don't see that leadership. I see more chaos, not more strength. So I can't see a year out to give people advice of what they should do with things that could be long-term investments, long-term strategies. I can talk about short-term ones. And let Ronaldo, me just before, before you do that, let me just reference uh, our session last February, this past February, with one of the economists from the Federal Reserve, Gary Zimmerman, and their predictions that they had laid out um, presumed that the sequester would not happen. And the bottom line was that if the sequester did happen, as it has, uh, all of their numbers would have to be scaled back. And so th that scaling back is very much in line with what you just talked about um, and the expectations for growth or diminished growth, but still a slow growth pattern. Yeah, I, I, I think that if we don't get a second um, shot of sequester, which, as you know, is automatically set to happen next year, and the easiest way to stop the sequester, which clearly now there's there's no question it is harmful, um, is to pass a bill in Congress that says that we hereby cancel any further sequester. And then it's over, and we can then start dealing with budget issues in a normal fashion. If we don't do that, and we take another whack at sequester between now and 2014, uh, the Republicans will achieve their goal, which is to keep the economy growing so slowly that it injures the Democrats' chances for re-election, and it would probably turn over even more seats and more House seats to the Republicans. Conversely, the Democrats have this terrible problem where now any Democrat that supports the president on, its, in, on, on the cuts to Social Security will find themselves primaried, I believe, and some of them will lose. So I think there's going to be a huge depressive effect on the ability of the president to command his Democratic constituency. So that's why I can't see much more than a year to the future. But here's what I can see in the near term. We gave a, we gave a, a projection on this show a few months back. Um, I'm not sure when it was about the S&P. S&P, that was December 4th. Um, okay, so actually the show was a couple weeks before that. But um, we, we purchased the S&P no. fund when the S&P was at 1431. It's now at 1587 uh, as of last night, um, and which is an approximately a 10.8% rise in the S&P in four months' time. Yeah, so that so if you if it kept at that same pace, it would be you'd have about a twenty percent gain on your money just from having one followed that one piece of advice on this show. It's not going to keep at that pace. I want people to know that. Uh, but I don't think it's time to sell the stock market. In fact, um, I'm seeing problems arise potentially in the bond market in the future. We're not going to have time to talk about it today. On a subsequent show, Howard, we really need to talk about Japan. Uh, people don't realize that a massive effort is being made, one last time, I believe, to turn around a 22-year deflationary cycle in Japan. Um, the fact that they're going to be printing money to do it, the fact that they're now going to be an accommodative policy, looks to me like if it works, it will help the global economy start to 
click a little bit better. Uh, if it doesn't work, it raises all kinds of issues. And the fact that they're even trying it raises questions on the bond market, and there are other problems that are questions in the bond market to begin with. So right now, I'm looking <clears throat> gingerly at the future of the bond market. I'm looking uh, at the impact of these events overseas. I'm not particularly troubled by North Korea. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the new ship that the Americans have had for a couple of years and never wanted to talk about their secret ship, which has lasers on board, uh, that they've now reparked, they're about to repark it off of the Korean coast. I hope that they take a, one missile down with a laser and demonstrate that this era, era of one little 30-year-old's petulance can be stopped by a beam of light. <laughs> There's a metaphor there which I just love, stopped by a beam of light. So let's hope that the, the that this new weapon works that the Americans have. They've now announced publicly they have it. They've announced that they are potentially willing to use it, and the weapon would be to destroy a missile that was launched uh, even as it rose into the sky. Um, I think that there's a. Um, it, it, it's sad that the uh, that the, the the Republicans had a victory in their sequester approach, uh, but I think that as I said, the worst effects of that are coming to an end. The questions that I would like to hear people talk about is, and they might be interested, is it still a good time, for example, to buy a house? Answer: Yes. The housing market's recovering across the country. In some markets, the worst hit, like Phoenix, it's galloping forward. L.A., it's doing much better. Is it time to buy California uh, general obligation bonds? Yes, the state of California recovery, which we started talking about on this show three, four months ago, everybody acknowledges is real. California is on the way back. There's a lot of reasons for it. We can list them if you like, folks, but at the end of the day, the California economy will start to grow again. And I believe, unlike the federal situation, I think the leadership in California is quite consolidated, so I'm expecting to see improvements to the California education system. I'm expecting to see improvements to California infrastructure. I'm expecting to see improvements to the California economy. And all of those things are fairly significant given that the, EU, the California economy is still around the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world. You have 36 million people, and they seem to be marching in California, at least, in the right direction. You have other parts of the country that are not. One more thing I want to talk about briefly, the drought of 2012 which just happened last year, which was not predicted by anybody but this show. We told you to watch out for it. We told you it was a factor of climate change. Everybody's saying now that we we got that behind us. And for that reason, even, I've noticed that uh, futures on various agrarian products have not been doing well. I don't recommend anybody who listens to this show play the commodities market. I never, ever suggest that because uh, a leveraged commodity play is very dangerous. On the other hand, I want to continue to repeat that it is a certainty in my mind the two things that you can make money on in the future are water, which will become increasingly scarce with climate change and increasingly valuable, and the other is food. Now, I, I particularly want to underscore food because I don't think the great drought of 2012 is over for all time. We might get a respite for one or two years at most, but the increasing temperature on the globe will cause additional massive droughts larger than the drought of 2012. In fact, I will say with, without any doubt in my mind, uh, within five years, we'll look back fondly at 2012 and go, oh, my God, that was nowhere near as bad as it got. No, so let me add to that. Let me add to that, that I spend a fair amount of time in the course of a day reading newspapers from all over the world and picking up news stories, uh, many of which deal with climate issues, which may not seem significant in and of themselves, but collectively, you are seeing an enormous flood of information basically stating weather has changed. It has gotten weird everywhere. Even two days ago, there was a note 
that air turbulence that will affect international travel has gone up significantly over the past decade. Uh, so you see little things which, like by the way, is directly affected by a thing we've been studying in the academy for 20 years, which is the uh, upper atmosphere, which is where the jet stream operates. And there's a specific discipline that I've personally dabbled in a lot for the last 20 years called uh, upper atmosphere fluid dynamics. Uh, and it's a it's, it's it's a very fascinating part of science where you begin to look at the destabilizing effects of climate change on the flow of this massive current that straddles the globe called the the, the jet stream. But before we leave the show today, because I know we're out of time, I'm just asking people stick around for one or two more minutes. I want to update folks on our safe energy project at the at the uh, academy. As you all may know, we've been very active now. And if you don't know, please look on our website and learn about it. You'll, we'll be posting more information as we go along. The academy decided to tackle the San Onofre nuclear power plant. We have petitioned in our intervener in that proceeding. Uh, we've been filing pleadings in that proceeding. Uh, we've been working with Friends of the Earth as co-counsel and, and co-petitioners in several things. Also with TURN, which stands for Toward Utility Rate Normalization, the preeminent utility rate uh, organization in California. Uh, and our goal is to keep San Onofre offline. Our goal is to see that it never comes back online. Our goal is to have the state of California hold hearings on a bill to look at whether or not the power companies are really paying the full bill, the full cost of all the external costs, the externalities for nuclear power. And we'd like to see a complete examination with the hope that people will look at Diablo Canyon as well as San Onofre, Diablo Canyon being the only remaining nuclear plant other than San Onofre, and to begin to realize we don't need them. In fact, the CalISO, which is the system operator for the state of California, the principal energy authority, uh, concluded in a report that, in fact, we could survive fine without Diablo or San Onofre, and they wrote that report after San Onofre was already offline. The thing I want to point out is just this week – and I'll end on this note, the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is probably one of the most perverse agencies in the United States government in that the, the industry, the nuclear industry, owns and controls that commission. The chairman who just retired said, and I'm quoting, his name is um, uh, Jasko, J-A-C-Z-K-O, yeah. quote, all 104, all 104 nuclear power reactors now in operation in the United States have a safety problem that cannot be fixed. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the Academy knew years ago. That's why we took on this fight. Please stay tuned to what we're doing in California. Hopefully, it'll be the shot heard around the world. And if you can support us in any way, we need that support now because we're taking on the Titans. In fact, I've never felt more like a David and a Goliath battle. But uh, Ronaldo, let me ask you very quickly, since we are a little bit over time here. Um, is there something you would like our listeners to do in response to this issue? Yes, I want anybody who's interested in knowing anything more about why the so-called safe, normal operation of a nuclear power plant, which you just heard the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says doesn't ever happen. All 104 plants are inherently defective and cannot be fixed. In the normal operation, these plants are giving off deadly toxic levels of strontium-90, which are radically increasing breast cancer in women, and increasing childhood leukemias. So we are literally killing our women and children. By the way, if you're a lactating woman, it's even worse for you than it is for a normal woman who is not uh, providing milk to an infant. So I want to urge people, if you are even remotely interested in knowing more about this, please send your name to us at the Academy, info at worldbusiness.org. We will keep you apprised. We'll put you on a list. We're helping to form a coalition in California uh, and we're providing information so that when people go to the polls, hopefully in an initiative soon, they'll have the information they need to make an intelligent decision. 
Uh, with that, Howard, I just want to thank our listeners uh, for their patience today. We ran a couple minutes over. I also want people to please remember, this is my only commercial announcement, please tell your friends, tell your relatives, tell everybody you know to sign up to listen to the show. Uh, send them a copy. It's free. We do this as a public service, and we're interested in having more people know how people like Jim Cusimano can succeed being a conscious capitalist and how nuclear power can be destructive by preying on our worst fears and greed. With that, I want to thank everybody, and please tell your friends, let's get a bigger audience, let's make a bigger wave, let's help people all across the country and across the planet understand what their choices are and how those choices can lead to a better tomorrow. Thank you. And let me mention again, our next broadcast, our next show, will be in May on the 9th. That's the second Thursday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Time. And uh, with that, if you want to contact us, again, email us at info at worldbusiness.org. And with that, I thank you all for tuning in today and for listening to the show, and we'll catch you next month. Bye now.